Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Ronnie Virgitz, author most recently of Saints and Lesser Souls. Welcome back to Writers Forum, Ronnie. Hi, good to be here. Good to be here, Sherry. Good to see you again. Um, well, <clears throat> first of all, you have an unmistakable voice of New Orleans, so anybody who's listening who isn't familiar with your work because we, we're on the web, so people aren't all in New Orleans, but they can tell by your accent. <laughs> you are <laughs> the quintessential huh? New Orleanian. <clears throat> you grew up here. You went to, well, it was used to be called St. Aloysius. Yes, over on uh, Rampart and, in Esplanade, yeah. And when you were a kid, I was reading, uh, I, I went through all your books because it's just such a pleasure to reread them. And you were talking about playing as a kid on the neutral ground on Jeff Davis. Yeah. Playing football. So you all lived around there and you hung out We did. We lived around there. Uh, lived around uh, several locations, but they were usually all in the same neighborhood. So, uh, yeah, I kind of, yeah, I kind of grew up in one particular spot. And you had a lot of jobs. <laughs> I had a lot of jobs, yeah. You were a bartender? Uh, I was a bartender in several places, yes. Not a good bartender, but a bartender. Well, and I think of you um, from your background as Railbird Ronnie. You you wrote, you hung out at the racetrack. I did. I spent a lot of time at the racetrack. I, I, I actually, uh, you know, I actually had... Uh, Hmm, how do you say this? I had a bookmaker in the family, <laughs> so uh, yeah. We uh, won't name names. <laughs> we won't name any names, no. But I, I, I actually write about him in in, in this uh, in this new collection this thing. Yes, and and you um you also wrote for the racing form, right? You actually I did. I actually wrote for the racing form. <laughs> yes, yes. For a long time. <clears throat> for for a good while, yes, and. Uh, well, we I know you. That. We know you from. You've written for Gambit, The Times, Picayune, New Orleans Magazine, Television, won awards. You won an Emmy Award and Murrow Award. Um, I remember when you were king of Cru de Vu, which was ah, a big honor for Mardi Gras. Yes, it was very much because we, um, you know, uh, the king's float was pulled by mules, like just like in the old-fashioned days. Uh, so that was very cool. Yeah, that parade, <clears throat> the tourist was talking about it the other day and said she didn't think it was appropriate for children. And I said, well, no, but it's, it's, no, it's not. No. It's a fun parade, and it's it's the only one really still in the French Quarter, mm -hmm. you know, because the others, the floats are too big now and everything. And it's more of a, a locals' fun parade, I think. Now, on a serious note, I, I think you might have spent some time in Vietnam. I did, yes. Because you've did. written some very poignant things about Vietnam. Uh, yeah, a, a, a fellow from the uh, VA recently had a uh, a thing that I was uh, I sort of hosted. I guess is the right word. Uh, he, he spoke to several Vietnam veterans about their experience and their experience coming home and what that was like. Well, now, there, this book that we're talking about today, Saints and Lesser Souls, 
this is the third of a trilogy. I guess this is it. Yes. A collection of your writings over the years. And the first one, Say Cap, um, you wrote about, oh, all kinds of things. Lake Pontchartrain, the river, Mardi Gras. I loved your uh, rereading. You had written a resume when Governor Edwards <laughs> was... was uh, looking for people to get those gaming licenses, which I, I, the reason why I particularly struck me, I happened to write a, a good bit. I covered all the trials for that. And, and I thought, I'm glad, I'm glad Ronnie was only joking because you would have ended up in court with, <laughs> with Governor Edwards and, <clears throat> and those others. And then you had, um, in Lost Bread, you, um, you had a very, you, you, you published a column and it was it was all over the place. It, you read it on New Orleans uh, on NPR. Uh, it was about Katrina, the displaced diary of a displaced person. The first seventy two hours. You want to just mention briefly what was your Katrina experience that you wrote so well about? Yeah. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me. I think I was like uh, several other people. Uh, <clears throat> in the days leading up to that experience. And as a matter of fact, as I noticed the uh, the hurricane season, if you will, uh, nowadays we tend to uh, have a lot of time on TV about the coming hurricane. And uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm only afraid that some people will do what I did, which was basically... And, you know, they're trying to scare us, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, for Katrina, it really happened. So, uh, yeah. So you weren't prepared, and you were in this house, and the water started coming up. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes. Uh, it, 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 had a, uh, it had one bedroom on the second floor, and uh, that's, of course, where I ended up. And, uh, and 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 when I left the downstairs thing, it must uh, the water was probably up to my chest. Uh, it was really scary. I, I I certainly remember you you finally wrote on a sheet yes. so that so maybe the helicopters would see you. And I remember yes. your message. You do. Do you remember? Yes, of course, because it was uh, purportedly the first sentence that I ever said, which was, here I is. <laughs> and uh, that's, what I, that's what I wrote on a uh, pillowcase and nailed to the outside of the house in case anybody passing. I'd say, well, here I is. Might be my first sentence and it might be Your my last. last sentence. Yeah. That was very memorable. And you, um, you ultimately... Some people did fly, you know, fly down and and rescue you. And I remember <laughs> you said, "Where are you taking me?" And they said they were going to take you to the Superdome. Yes. And I don't think that was your first choice. No, it was not. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, I I refused them, and uh, I don't know why. It was the only uh, it was the only sensible thing I did in the, <laughs> in the entire time was not go to the Superdome, because I do know a few people that did go to the Superdome that regretted it. And I remember you said, what else you got? Yes, what you got? <laughs> what else you got? 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I ended up going to uh, uh, where was it? Where Nichols State University? Yeah, Thibodeau. Was. Thibodeau. Yeah. Well, it it's very uh, moving, and you put it in one of your books, and you know, I, I'll just tell people. Um, you can Google it <laughs> and read it for free, uh, and it's it's a very dramatic and one of the most memorable things I think that came out of Katrina. I happen to know I wrote a thing with um, Susan Larson was interested, and I know that on the second anniversary of Katrina, there were six hundred books written about Katrina. Wow! I had interviewed on this program, I think twenty five authors by the second year. So I really was interested in sorting out what was well-written, and, and I just thought yours was, your. it wasn't a book, it was, um, but it was a long column, a long right. article. Uh, very, very dramatic. Well, let's talk a little bit about the new book. Um, the cover is, is, what, Sisters of Charity? Is that what I heard you saying? Yes, in other words, uh, that was... The, that's Saint the interior Joseph. of St. Joseph Church over on Tulane Avenue, which was the uh, home church of, of my family. And uh, it, it was run, the, the nuns who who taught there were the Sisters of Charity. Yeah. Well, and this is a Catholic city. Yes, and it I, was then, for sure. Well, I became a tour guide last year, and I found out, you know, you, you learn a lot to take that test which I didn't realize, until we became a state, you actually had to be a Catholic to live in New Orleans. And, I mean, it was terrible. All the slaves, they made the slaves become Catholics. Um, and that's why the Garden District is so different from the rest of New Orleans because for the first time, once we were a state, Protestants could come and, and live here. So you're, you're, all your writing is um, through the lens of a, well, I'll say the quintessential yat. That's not a derogatory term, is it? You use it to describe yeah, yourself. Yeah, now I use it. Uh, I was a little slow to use it, but yeah, yeah, everybody uses it now. So, well, it's it's a person that was raised here. Um, you know, in the time when you were here, a lot of people say your accent sounds a lot like um, a New York accent because mm -hmm. the same kind of people settled in New York that settled here at the same time. And um, I will give this disclaimer. I was working at Loyola, and <clears throat> they asked me to help uh, produce a centennial video. And I said, okay, but only if I can get Ronnie Virgis to agree <laughs> to uh. be the narrator because I figured, I mean, what better voice of uh, the quintessential New Orleanian uh, kind of person that went to Loyola, you know, for the past, the first hundred years anyway, was local, and uh, you were very gracious, and you did a wonderful job with that. Um, <clears throat> now, the Sisters of Charity, your mother worked at Big Charity, right? She worked in the hospital? No, no, no. <clears throat> Excuse me, my grandmother. Oh, your grandmother. My grandmother worked at Big Charity, yeah, for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking charity. Um, one of the things you wrote, and usually when it's a nonfiction person, we just talk to the person. We we rarely ask someone who writes nonfiction to read, but I can't let a 30-minute 
interview go by and not ask you to read for us, if you would be so kind. Um, if, if I'm going to take dealer's choice, um, there's a couple of columns that I just love that are in this book. One is, it's called Toil and Trouble. Uh, you were leaving a job. Is that, do you want to set it up yes, for us? Yes, I was leaving. One of, <laughs> one of the many it. times <laughs> I was leaving a job. Yes. And uh, it, it was just kind of a last day at work kind of thoughts. And how uh, how other people that work with you were kind of reacting to you your leaving. Well, I, I thought this was especially poignant now that not only are um, between the recession and so on, so many people have had that experience that maybe, you know, 30 or 40 years ago you could work at one place. Yes. But particularly I'm sensitive to the uh, journalistic profession and, and helped write a book, in fact, about... Um, the changes that took place here in New Orleans when the Times-Picayune downsized and um, I think 200 people mm, mm. were suddenly doing Out just what work. you did. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you would read that to us, I would sure. just love to hear it. Yeah, that. if you can put up with it. Let me get my little my little $1.98 reading glasses. Okay. The article is entitled Toil and Trouble, and it begins uh, with a quote, which I took from the third chapter of Genesis, the one that says, In the sweat of thy, your brow you must make a living until you return to the ground. Jobs. Even if you take the Bible literally and treat them like the curse that they are, you must remember that most people treat them like a religion. It's a struggle to find one and another sort of struggle to lose one. Today's struggle will be that very public ritual known as cleaning out your desk. You choose a different route to get there and pass a furniture store sign that reads, choose the terms to suit you. What choices await you? Beyond doubt, before you can again turn your hand to labor, you will have to take your beggar's bowl to some cold desk and sit there looking confident and ready to vend. It's said that when things are seen for the first time, they are more likely to make a big impression. The last time, too. At the rear of the parking lot, there's a drain pipe enveloped in some summer green fronds. For the last time, the fronds look great. Your personalized mailbox is appropriately empty. You walk to your desk and start making the last long-distance call you're charged to this company. Then you put down the phone and think about how you are now that little piece of neutral ground between bright dawn and dark night. On the one hand, there's always some sort of relief that you'll no longer be at the beck and call of these dull minds who don't appreciate your worth. On the other hand, you're losing your share, and there's no guarantee that anyone will appreciate your worth. That's not how the gods work. You do run across things, papers, pictures, memos, that make you remember jobs done well or amusingly. Then, too, things whose value you've totally forgotten. 
Those go in the trash can, not the trash bag. Little by little, your fellow workers began to drift over. When you lose your job, you become a walking reminder of career mortality. Plenty of those who stop by act like what's happened to you might be contagious. Or maybe that someone from the higher echelons might see them acting a little too friendly towards you and make a mental note of it. Many simply ask, what you gonna do? It's a quick check to see if you've got a survival strategy that you can almost see the question scroll across their eyes. What would I do? The ones who are the most unsettled make the most jokes. Incredulity is what you seek in these goodbyes. I just can't believe it. On the other hand, there are those who don't act surprised at all, and still others who probably always act a bit guarded in the presence of unemployment. They are the ones who would always name the bee or the ant as their favorite insect. Yet, you're somehow glad to see them all. You will live some work connection with each one, no matter how slender. Odd how nostalgic it all seems, especially since no one dares exude nostalgia. There's a protective dullness that enters your body, maybe a part of which is glacial hostility, and tries to desensitize you a little. So the visitors start to say something nice, and you shush them with some shuck about winning the lottery or preparing a cardboard den under the Broad Street overpass. This bravado is called for. You must keep up some sort of faith in the goddess Fortuna so that she will not let you die broke and afraid. Then suddenly you realize that for totally uncertain reasons, you are the one who's dragging this out. You deal with the last phone call. You decide to leave in your desk a nickel, some paper clips, and a couple of unsharpened pencils. You hand in your keys and badges. Now, out the back door. The last two contacts are from a guy you seldom work with and a gal who is nothing but nice. You had flirted unsuccessfully, and after a while, the best thing you had with her was a smile about how unsuccessful the flirting had been. That's okay. There are many people you work with every day and don't even have that much. The guy had simply said, may the wind be always at your back. And the gal had looked up from her desk and blew a two-fingered kiss. But now, real, just enough to remember. Perfect when you'll be gone from a place for a long old time. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on your way out. It didn't. That's really just so, so beautiful. I mean, it, it's just you. Um, <laughs> we don't have a lot of time, but I do, I'm going to ask you, if you can, to read another one. But before you do, I just want to mention, this is a wonderful collection. It includes um, 
something that you wrote, Whatever Happened to Ronnie Virgitz? And if we had more time, we would talk about you've moved to New Roads and you, you wrote so beautifully about that. And we still hear your voice, uh, even though you're not working at TV stations anymore <clears throat> doing columns, you're, you're certainly heard very often doing promotions and, during, um, and doing uh, commercials. So everybody hears your voice. My favorite, you wrote about all kinds of things here, you know, sin, salvation, history. But my favorite is one that actually you wrote quite a while ago because your kids are now grown. You said you now have many grandchildren. Um, but this is one of your children. And it, we're, as we're taping this, it'll air just, you know, sometime before Christmas. So would you would you read the um, Christmas one that you wrote about uh, your daughter? Okay. Um uh... This one's title was Magic Lives One Last Time. There had been two children before her, so I knew the warning sign. Brenda said there's no Santa Claus, that your parents put out the toys after you're asleep, Tara informed me a couple of Decembers ago, but she's such a liar. I looked down at her eight-year-old face as she said it, and saw the mix of faith and doubt there. Well, the time had come for my youngest, the time when the magic of Christmas begins to melt from the heat of forced March maturation. I remembered when stuttering Jimmy Upton told me there was no Santa, there in the cloakroom of Sacred Heart School. Made me mad enough to push Jimmy Upton against one of the clothes hooks and formed in me an eternal enmity for those who use superior knowledge to make others feel bad. I said no more to my daughter that day, but I felt once again the sadness of that long-ago moment in the cloakroom. Maybe it was the finality of it all, the last real Christmas for the last child. By next year, she would realize the accuracy of Brenda's information, would know that the gifts in her life came from hands distinctly human and unmagical. Into each young life must crash a Brenda or a Jimmy Upton. The next day, I decided to make Tara's last childhood Christmas a good one. I made the arrangements with her mother to have it to myself on Christmas Eve. I bought a tree for my bachelor apartment and for days stalked the French Quarter shops, buying toys with a definite Victorian look, a little wooden drummer boy, a rocking horse, a porcelain doll, a Santa that resembled a European grandfather. To make it all work, I arranged for a friend to slip into my apartment after we had gone to midnight mass and lay out the present. Let Brenda try to explain how they got there. Tara and I sipped eggnog and sang off-key off carols until it was time to leave for church. She was wearing a red dress and white stockings and had never looked prettier. I flicked out all but the tree lights, leaving the room bathed in reds and greens and yellows for when we got back. Mass was long, and Tarot fell asleep by the offertory and slid off the pew during the communion. But after Mass, 
I knew what to do about us sleeping. It's late, I said cheerfully. I wouldn't be surprised if Santa has come by my house already. He always gets to the third ward pretty early. I made the drive home a leisurely one, allowing time for the power of suggestion to gather force. Look over there, Tara, over, over that roof. Is that a sled? After a couple of my sightings, she began to nod wordlessly. As we pulled up in front of my apartment, Tara caught me by the sleeve. Her eyes had gotten big, and they were going to stay big for another hour. You go up first, Daddy, she whispered. He may still be in there. We tiptoed up the stairs, me leading by a yard. I flung open the door and gasped dramatically. Tara jumped a foot straight up and then scrambled to my side. Daddy, go, I yelled. Out the window, did you see him? Oh, yes, she answered without perjury. Tara... The family baby rushed to the tree and fell to her knees. For the final time, she had seen Santa the way he should be seen, and the tree lights played off her unending smile. I memorized the whole scene and knew that I would never again cause such a smile without taking credit for it. Oh, Daddy, she cooed as she peeled the wrapping away from the porcelain gall. I believe, I believe. By that moment, I believed to do, believed in myself and the power of things that yoke us together in belief. Have yourselves a merry little Christmas. That gives me the chills. (laughs) That's such a beautiful, beautiful column. You're such a gifted writer. Um, And even when you're um, doing the promotional work, I, I saw Channel 26 a couple of years ago, last year, they won an award for having the best, promo, you know, a top award. It's a big deal. And um, it was for a series, God, God Bless New Orleans, and you were the voice for it. And the um, promotion director that won it said, we used um, Ronnie Virgitz as our voiceover because he best understood the emotion and sweetness of living in Louisiana. And I thought uh-huh. that really sums sums up, I thought, very nicely. Um, you're such a treasure. You're just a New Orleans treasure. I'm gushing, I know, but I can't <laughs> help it. Oh, don't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Um, you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest today, Ronnie Virgitz, um, author of, well, two collections of his two previous collections of his work, and the latest one is called Saints and Lesser Souls, The New Orleans Views of Ronnie Virgitz. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.